please. Father, we open up the Bible now, and uh, we, we want to, we need to hear from you. We need your words written here by men under your guidance. We need these words. And uh, Father, I, I just pray that you would give us ears to hear. We would, though they be hard today, we would welcome them as coming from the hand of a loving and good Father. So I pray that your Spirit would bear them with all his power and grace to each of us now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We are amidst the season of Lent, 40 days leading up to Easter that readies us for meditations on the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And to do that, we are walking through the last week of Jesus' life, pretty much one or or sometimes two days at a time each week. And we started last week, we looked at something called Lazarus Saturday, when uh, Jesus spent time in the little village of Bethany with his friends and was anointed there by Mary in a real powerful, worshipful way, and then moved on into the next day, Sunday, perhaps more familiar to you, is sometimes called Palm Sunday, where Jesus enters Jerusalem Jerusalem, and throngs are shouting Hosanna and paving his way with palm branches. Um, And those palm branches represented to some the, the hope, the nationalist hope for Israel that a deliverer had come who would rescue them from the Roman oppression. And uh, we read about it. This, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, and we read about it this Palm Sunday entrance in Mark chapter 11, verse 7, where they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And so far in Jesus' Passion Week, so far so good, right? This is the way things are supposed to be. People are turning out en masse to cheer Jesus on, to welcome him into the city. And the population of Jerusalem at the Passover is thought to have increased several times over so that there would be thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people in these throngs that are welcoming Jesus, celebrating the coming of their king and their deliverer. But you advance just five days through this last week and what seems so right turns so wrong, it seems. The people who were, um, the same people in the crowds who were Hosanna shouters on Palm Sunday come Maundy Thursday evening, their cries have changed and they've exchanged cries of Hosanna for cries of crucify him, crucify him. You have to wonder, what happened in just five days that goes from welcoming him with cries of Hosanna to shouting for his death with cries of crucify him? And the answer to that question is complicated, it's multifaceted, but in part, I think it had to do with expectations. Jesus um, 
was not who they expected him to be. I think he shocked them at almost every turn. Jesus was not conforming to their expectations. Instead, he is following without wavering the plan of his father. So Jesus doesn't come on a war horse to vanquish the enemies of God's people. He comes humble. He comes on a donkey. He comes not to to conquer armies, but to bear a cross. And so this donkey that he rides, it's a sign of his humility. It's not a white charger. It's a humble beast of burden, the kind you would have seen around the manger scene some 30 years ago when Jesus was born. And last week we looked at John 12, and we read this about his entrance. Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And here John, in telling the story of Jesus' uh, triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, who attaches messianic significance to Jesus' entrance on that humble donkey. Okay? Jesus is intentionally fulfilling the role of Messiah here. He's presenting himself as the Messiah. He does it by his mode of transportation. He does it by the geography here that he comes in. We saw last week, he comes in from the Mount of Olives, out where Bethany is. And one writer says that even the mention of the name of Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives was connected with the coming of the Messiah in Jewish expectations. That's where the Messiah would come, was the Mount of Olives. So even the geographical reference here is saying, here he is. Some scholars think that the date that Jesus entered the city, that Sunday, that Palm Sunday, was the day of the week that the Passover lamb was selected for the slaughter. And so the place, the mode of transportation, the timing, okay, you can't miss it. Jesus is choosing to present himself as the Messiah. He enters Jerusalem as the rescuer of God's people. But he's following God's plan, not the crowds, and so Jesus is the humble king. He comes in on a young donkey. And that's why what happens next is something of a shocker, okay? If you'll look um, in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem. This is the close of that Palm Sunday. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went back out to Bethany with the 12, and he would spend the night there. And in light of what follows, you get a sense here that Jesus is casing the joint, okay? He's gone in to see what's going on in that temple. And then The next day, it says in verse 12, on the following day, that's Monday, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
And then as they continued on into Jerusalem, he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So this assault on the fig tree and the assault on the temple take place on Monday morning of Jesus' final week. Um, this day is appropriately called Fig Monday. Okay? So we have Lazarus Saturday, Palm Sunday. Now we're on what has historically been known as Fig Monday uh, because of this incident with the fig tree. So on Sunday, he had scouted out the situation. And on Monday morning, Jesus returns with a vengeance. Right? The meat guy on the donkey goes ballistic on an innocent fig tree and the temple. And you have to think, what is up with Jesus? Did he get up on the wrong side of the bed? Is he having one of those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days? Is this just Monday morning Jesus? Is this just what you get? Um, I think it's better to recognize that what Jesus is doing is what what the Old Testament prophets often did. He is enacting his message. He's acting out God's message of judgment on his people. Um, They're called enacted parables. Um, For instance, in the Old Testament, prophet Isaiah walked around naked um, to communicate provocatively to the people what it would be like when they were carried into captivity as slaves by Assyria. Okay. Um, Jesus, both the cursing of the fig tree and the trashing of the temple are those kinds of provocative message enactments, right? Um, he is foretelling with both of these, both of these actions the coming judgment of God upon the people of Israel and especially upon the temple. Um, So think about the fig tree first and the symbol that's behind that. In the Old Testament, um, a barren fig tree is a symbol of the barrenness, the spiritual barrenness in someone's life, the people's life, that brings God's judgment upon his people. Um, The prophet Jeremiah is probably the backdrop for this. So in Jeremiah chapter 8, God is speaking and he says, Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? They is God's people, Judah, in the southern kingdom. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. And you hear the echoes of the imagery that is happening when Jesus curses the fig tree. So Jesus cursing the fig tree is not some kind of environmental statement, okay? It's not an endorsement for using Roundup or Agent Orange or whatever you use, okay? Any more than Isaiah walking around naked is an endorsement of a nudist colony. has nothing to do with that, okay? These are symbolic acts of judgment upon God's own people 
with the fig tree for unbelief in his son that draws on this Old Testament prophetic kind of imagery. So following this fig tree encounter, Jesus re-enters the city of Jerusalem on that fig Monday morning, right? And once there, once again, he acts out judgment again, this time on the temple. Um, Verse 15 of Mark 11, they came to Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And so the focus of his anger and this symbolic judgment is on the temple, and the temple was... um, really the heart of the nation. It'd be like a political candidate going into the White House and throwing the furniture around in the White House. Um, Professor David Garland says that the temple was the central institution of Israel's religious, political, and economic life. Economically, it dominated more than just the skyline of Jerusalem, because it was a massive temple, Herod's temple. But it also served as a central bank, the Capitol building, and Wall Street, all rolled into one. So Jesus is performing this second symbolic act on Monday aimed right at the heart of the people's religious, political, and economic life. And it is a ferocious assault. Matt Woodley says it's always tempting to reduce Jesus to one-dimensional qualities like compassionate or accepting. But this vignette reminds us that Jesus wasn't just a nice guy. And he points out that the language that is used here when it says Jesus drove out the money changers, it's the same language that's used when it says he drove out demons. Okay. Um, he says it's easy to drive out one person, but Jesus drove out an entire strip mall filled with happy and profitable vendors. And you notice nobody stops him. Not the religious leaders, not the temple guard. Nobody dares stop Jesus, it is a furious indignation. Matter of fact, if you were to look up the definition of righteous indignation, uh, this would be the perfect picture of that. This is not Sunday school Jesus, right? So I looked up um, this blog, What Jesus Wouldn't Do. And they say Jesus wouldn't lie. Jesus wouldn't steal, Jesus wouldn't cheat, Jesus wouldn't covet his neighbor's goods or wife, Jesus wouldn't judge, Jesus wouldn't place blame, Jesus wouldn't instill fear. And I'm afraid our silly blogger has not read Mark 11, okay? Because Jesus gets seriously judgmental here, he points fingers, he lays blame, and he instills some serious fear, okay? It's interesting, um, This is probably the second time Jesus has done this. The first time is recorded at the beginning of John's gospel. And there John tells us that when Jesus drove out money changers that time, he made a whip and he drove them out with a whip of cords. Okay, This is definitely not Sunday school Jesus. So when we say Jesus is a meek and loving servant king, he is. Okay, But what we cannot say when we say that is that 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 means that he, he tolerates sin because clearly he doesn't, especially not in his father's house. Okay. 
So why does the meek and gentle donkey rider go ballistic in the temple? Um, Verse 17 helps us with that and what follows. Jesus was teaching them after this, after he did this action, this symbolic action. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting another of the Old Testament prophets, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they recognized it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching, and when evening came, Jesus and his friends went back out of the city, back out likely to Bethany. So, Jesus seems to be upset here, it says, because the temple had ceased to be a house of prayer and had become instead a den or a refuge for robbers, for outlaws. Um, What what does Jesus mean when he quotes that? What is he he thinking about? And there's a number of things that may come to bear. It could be about greed and corruption, right? Because there is money being changed in the temple um, so that people can buy the offerings that they need. Um, At Passover, it's even more and more people such that a place set aside for worship has become a flea market of sorts and greed and corruption could very well have been a part of it. He also indicates that prayerless religion was a concern of his. That the temple had ceased to be a house of prayer. Something else had captured the people's hearts and hopes. Ceased to be a house of prayer, prayerless religion. And you know, we, we flirt with this. It's a temptation for us. I mean, th- just think with me for a second. If your prayer life was the prevailing prayer life in our church, what would the reputation of our church be? Would we be known as a house of prayer if your prayer life was prevalent? See, Jesus, I think, is also troubled, not only by the prayerlessness and all that. He's also troubled, I think, by the temple's exclusivity. You notice he says that it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Um, But D.A. Carson says that the temple had ceased to fulfill its God-ordained role as a witness to the nations, and it instead become a nationalist stronghold. And this combination of nationalist pride and prayerlessness seems to have moved people to exclude those who should have been invited in and also to trust in the temple itself in a way that should have been trusting in God. The temple had become a proud symbol of a superstitious belief that God would protect his people regardless of their obedience to his will. So, Things were good with you and God if you just did the temple thing. Okay. That's, that's what really mattered. And Jesus is deeply troubled that the temple has become, as he calls it, a den of robbers, which is not primarily a reference to corruption, though that's part of it. This, this points a finger at what Jesus would call hypocrisy. Again, listen to Professor Garland. He says, the den is the place where robbers retreat after having committed their crimes. It's their hideout, a place of security and refuge. Jesus indirectly attacks them for allowing the temple to degenerate into a safe hiding place where people think that they can find forgiveness and fellowship with God no matter how they act on the outside. 
He says, Jesus' prophetic action and words attacked a false trust in the efficacy of the temple sacrificial system. The leaders of the people think that they can rob widows' houses and then perform the prescribed sacrifices according to the prescribed patterns at the prescribed times, in the prescribed purity, in the prescribed sacred space, and then be safe and secure from all alarms. He says they are wrong. The sanctuary, which has been set apart for the worship of God, had become a sanctuary for bandits who think they are protected from God's judgment. Hypocrites, Jesus would call them. People who live one way out there and pose as righteous in here. Think about it this way. Police officer pulls over a driver and asks the guy for his license and registration and the driver says, what's wrong, officer? I didn't run any red lights. I sure wasn't speeding. And uh, the officer says, no, no, you weren't, but I saw you waving your fist as you swerved around the lady driving in the left lane, and I further observed your flushed and angry face as you shouted at the driver of the Hummer who cut you off, and then I saw how you pounded your steering wheel when the traffic came to a stop near the bridge, and the guy goes, well, is that a crime, officer? He says, no, but when I saw this Jesus loves you and I do too bumper sticker on the car, I figured this car had to be stolen, So, would it be fitting for you to have a bumper sticker like that on your car? On your life? Um, Is the way you live out there out of sync with what you're posing to be in here? Do you think that somehow it's all magically rendered okay because you show up every week and do the church thing. See, the meat guy on the donkey hates hypocrisy, especially when it's amongst those who claim to be his followers. Listen to what he says in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus never has a kind word to say about a hypocrite. And so the point of Jesus' action in the temple has less to do with whether or not we should sell CDs in the church lobby than it has to do with whether we are pretending and are in fact a prayerless, faithless, unforgiving people. I wonder, would anybody consider you to be a hypocrite? The people at work? Uh, Your family at home? Uh, The students that you, your friends you go to school with? If they knew you were here, would would they think you're a hypocrite? Jesus, the humble, compassionate king, is not to be messed with because he will not tolerate hypocrisy amongst his people. You know, the thing you see here, Jesus is not just cleansing this temple. He is acting out its destruction. 
This is another symbolic act, this cleansing of the temple that anticipates not just a cleansing, but a destruction of the temple and its replacement with Christ himself. Listen to Professor James Edwards. He says, he gives us a good summary. He says, Mark portrays the, cleansing, the clearing of the temple not as its restoration, but its dissolution. Like the fig tree, the temple's function is withered from the roots. It's not the blood of animals slaughtered by the high priest on the day of atonement, but Jesus' own blood that will make Israel right with God. Indeed, at the moment of his death, the great curtain that divides the Holy of Holies from the court of Israel is torn in two, dramatizing the dissolution of the temple as the means of approach to God. In his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus alone is the access to God. So in the language of the book of Hebrews that we've been studying, we could say, one greater than the temple is here. And we are to worship him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength out there and in here. And so this raises the question, how do we avoid this judgment for our hypocrisy? And that's what Jesus addresses next in the verses that follow in verse 20, 21. Now we've, we've moved to Tuesday morning now. Okay? This is Tuesday morning of Jesus last week. As they passed by that next Tuesday morning, they saw the fig tree from the day before withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And so Peter's like, wow, check out the fig tree. And so even though the primary purpose of the fig tree was to act out a coming judgment on um, God's people for the rejection of the Messiah, Jesus kind of gives it a secondary application here that invites his disciples and he's inviting you and me to, into a life that's not marked by hypocrisy but actually pleases God. Verse 22, Jesus answers Peter and the guys, and he says, have faith in God. Okay. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Okay. See, Jesus is calling us to a life that's marked not by hypocrisy, but by two genuine things, faith and forgiveness. Faith and forgiveness. He uses the fig tree to call us to a life of faith that's evidenced by prayer. He's teaching us that faith and prayer go hand in hand. As soon as he says, have faith in God, then he talks about prayer. It's so, such a tight um, comparison that if we could say if you didn't pray about it, you probably aren't exercising faith in it. Okay. But he says some things about prayer here that are um, encouraging, super encouraging, but a little puzzling. Um, can we really, you know, mountains were often symbols in the Bible of obstacles or difficulties. Can we really Remove all obstacles and difficulties from our lives if we just have enough faith and don't doubt. 
Does, when he says, whatever you ask in prayer, does that mean anything at all? And I've um, read an article by John Piper this week that was super helpful for me. And I'll post it in its, in its fullness on our leader blog for you this week. But listen to a portion of it. He says, he says, the particular meaning of a particular word in a particular text in the Bible is determined by its particular usage by that particular author. And he illustrates that complicated sentence. He says, um, when I used to teach... At, at the seminary, I would come into class and I would say, is everybody here? And the students would say, yes. And he would say something really irritating like, well, then where's Jimmy Carter? If everybody's here, where's Jimmy Carter? And uh, it didn't take long, he says, to illustrate that the word everybody may or may not have an absolute all-inclusive meaning depending on the way it's used in that context. And he says that's the way it is with the term whatever in these verses in Mark. It may or may not be absolute and all-inclusive. He says if you were invited out to eat and you sat down at the table and said, I'll eat whatever you have, no one would offer you a pencil to eat or a straw basket or a shoe. They would know that whatever meant whatever you are serving for dinner. So the meaning of whatever in this verse in Mark can't be settled simply by looking at the word if we take whatever to mean any difficulty that we ever face, how would we possibly reconcile that with Jesus teaching that you're supposed to take up your cross, a great difficulty, and follow him? If by prayer, we can remove all difficulties. It's not, it just doesn't, that's not a sensible way to think about the broad teaching of Jesus. We have other beautiful promises about prayer that help us with the parameters that ought to go around these kind of amazing promises. 1 John 5, for instance, this is the confidence we have towards God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, anything. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that what we have, that we have the request that we have asked of him. If we ask anything according to his will, he qualifies it so that when he says, in whatever we ask, it's whatever we ask according to God's will, his good and perfect will. Okay. Those prayer promises are constrained by that. Thank God he does not always give us what we ask. Okay. He gives us better, harder, but better. So, how should we pray this way so that we pray without doubting? And again, John Piper was helpful. He says, how is such undoubting faith possible? He says, the only answer I can think of is that such undoubting faith is only possible if we know what God intends to do for those who believe. Or to put it another way, we can have undoubting faith if we know what God's will is in a particular situation. How can you keep from doubting if you don't know what God intends to do? How can anyone have assurance that the answer to his prayers will not or will come to pass if he's not first assured that this is what God intends to do in response to his faith? There has to be a basis for faith. You can't just will to have no doubts if you're not sure that you are asking for is what God intends to do. And he gives this example. He says, I have had the flu all week, but I have not been able to pray for healing with undoubting faith that it will happen. 
The reason is that I do not know the will of God in regard to my health. It may be that he intends for me to be sick for two weeks, that I might learn to rely not on myself, but on God who raises the dead, as he quotes the Apostle Paul. And since I don't know what God intends to do about my health, it's impossible to have complete confidence that he will heal me when I ask him. In such cases, we must always pray, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And again, I'll post the entire article for you this week. It's very encouraging. Jesus is calling us to live a life free from prayerlessness and hypocrisy. So the intent of this teaching on prayer is to encourage you to pray great things along the lines of the will of God for the people that are in your world. To pray that God's kingdom would come into their world, that his will would be done in their world, in your world. And so, of course, this requires great, great knowledge of the scriptures and letting that shape the way that we pray. He wants us to pray and have faith in God and to trust that his will is good for us and for our world and to evidence that by praying great prayers. He wants the new temple, which is now the church, his body on this earth, to be inclusive, not exclusive. That's why racism has no place here. Not here or out there in the church. Okay? Jesus died to make a temple that was free from that. So he wants us to have faith in God and to pray great prayers. And he also wants us to forgive. That's how he closes this passage with the last verse we'll look at. Whenever you stand praying, Jesus says, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus wants us to pray and exercise faith. He wants us to get in the game of prayer and ask God for great things. Not because of where we pray in some temple, but because of who we pray to. And he wants us to live lives consistent with those prayers of trust and faith in the goodness of God. So he singles out as central to a life of, of, uh, that matches prayer, prayerfulness, okay. forgiving. For us to live a life consistent with prayerfulness and trusting God, he says, you must forgive. If we're to live lives free of hypocrisy, the hypocrisy Jesus is condemning here, then we must forgive, he says, if we have anything against anyone, forgive. Okay. That's what we do because we follow Christ. Um, I'm reading a couple of Lenten devotionals every day during this season, and one of them is called The Lent Project. It's from Biola University, and they put music and art and a devotional and scripture and poetry and they cram it all together in a little morning devotional you can do before you leave for, for your day. It's really very thoughtful. And yesterday was one of the most impactful ones that I've ever read. It was on this issue of forgiveness. And uh, the devotional was written by a lady whose son had been murdered. And the video was about something called the happening that's what the Amish of Lancaster County call it. They call it the happening. And 
it happened, it took place on October 2nd of 2006 when this little village of Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania suffered one of America's most sickening mass shootings. A local milk truck driver named Charlie Roberts entered an Amish schoolhouse with an arsenal of weaponry. He let the boys and the teacher go, but he tied up and then shot 10 little Amish girls, killing five of them and seriously wounding the other five, and then he killed himself as police stormed the building. Now, Terry Roberts was among the many people affected forever by the killings. She's the mother of the killer, Charlie Roberts, not Amish, but a devout Christian who raised her children to be Christian too. On the day of the shootings, she believed that her son might have gone to the school to help in some way and was worried he himself might have been shot by the killer. When she arrived there, the state trooper, she says, and her husband were standing right before me. I looked at the trooper and I said, is my son alive? And he said, no, ma'am. And then I looked at my husband and he said, it was Charlie. He killed those girls. And she said, no, this can't be true. She says, all day long, my husband could not lift his head and he would keep repeating, those poor women, those poor children, the poor parents, the poor fathers, we're going to have to move far away from here. We'll never be able to face our Amish neighbors again. But on day one, she says, on day one, a knock came on the door and it was Henry, our Amish neighbor from across the street. And Henry walked over to my husband and just started massaging his shoulders and says, Robert's we love you. We don't hold anything against you. We want you as our neighbor. Now, the interview says that forgiveness and acceptance were amplified in the days that followed. There were massively attended funerals for the five dead girls. There was also, of course, a burial for Terry's son, the killer, an event full of dread for the family as it inevitably attracted intense media attention. And then the bereaved Amish parents turned up for the Roberts' funeral. Walking, she says, walking on the grass over toward the area where our son would be buried and just to see this procession of Amish parents coming out and surrounding us was, she says, there aren't words to describe it. It was a protective circle against all those media trucks out on the big street that had their big telescoping lenses. And she says, and yet here we were. It just felt secure. Now, in Terry Roberts' case, Amish forgiveness has continued in a very tangible way as she and her husband have remained in the same home in that same community for over 10 years now. That home now has a sunroom. You see her in it here. It was built for them as a gift from Amish builders. And you notice the sign over the door that reads in Amish black, forgiven. There's a professor, his name is Donald Craybill, he specializes in Anabaptist and Pietist studies like the Amish. And he says that news reporters would ask me, well, well, were the Amish prepared for this? Do they have emergency preparedness drills in their school? And he said, no, no they don't, but they have forgiveness preparedness. They were ready to respond when events like this come. And so today, Jesus is calling you as a follower of his to have forgiveness preparedness. 
because, and for many of you, it's already happened. Someone is going to wrong you terribly, and they are going to wrong your children terribly. And Jesus says, forgive. Forgive. Forgive them. On that day, stand ready to forgive. So, um, this week, my, my 16-year-old son is going to get his driver's license this past week, right? Prayers appreciated. Um, he's six months late because our state government couldn't figure out how to pay for driver's ed. So he's six months late already anyway, and so he goes up to, uh, goes up to the DMV, and he's, he's in the office there, and they say, great, glad you're here, but if you're not, if you're not ready to go in the car by 4.30, uh, you can't take the test today. And so they call his name, he goes up, and the lady that's doing the driver's in says, no, I'm sorry, we can't take you. And he looks at his, at his phone, and it's 4.31. Okay. So by God's kindness, I'm not there, right? Because I'm getting this by text after, after it happens, and I'm thinking, if this, was, if this was private industry, and you turned a customer away at one minute after you were supposed to close... If you weren't, you, you, they might chop your head off. You'd lose your job. You'd at least be reprimanded. And so I start thinking, who is this lady's supervisor? I'm going to go up there and we're going to have a... You, you know what I'm not thinking? And this is, there's probably a backstory that makes perfect sense out of that. Okay? Why that happened in that way. Um, you know what I'm not thinking? I'm not thinking, you know, I should forgive them. I should forgive them. This is a really tiny thing. There's probably a backstory that explains it this time. I should forgive them. You know, much greater wrongs have been done and are going to be done to you and to your children. Jesus says, forgive, forgive. If you follow me authentically, forgive. Have forgiveness, preparedness, in the words of the Apostle Paul from Colossians 3, forgiving each other. He says, if you have a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You must forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And so now it's our, it's our privilege as a church family to remember how we've been forgiven. Because on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. It's for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. And so if you're here today and you are, um, you're an observer, you're watching what's happening here, you're not yet a part of what's happening here, know that Jesus went to the cross to procure sufficient forgiveness for your sins. There is a grace that's greater than your sin. And you're invited to, 
to partake of it as you place your trust in Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, follow him as your Lord, trust him as your Savior, you are invited into that all-sufficient forgiveness. If you're already a follower of Christ, then we are here to remember that, to never forget it, to cherish it, to cling to it again, to repent of the sins from this week, to lay them aside and come and draw near to Christ and find grace to help us in our time of need. So to lay aside our prayerlessness, to repent of that, to, to lay aside our lack of faith, our unforgiveness, to repent of that and ask Christ for mercy and draw near to him in remembrance of how it was that he has forgiven us. So if you'll bow with me in prayer, then we'll approach the table. Father, have mercy on us. Forgiveness is our, perhaps our greatest need. We, we need it. And it is perhaps your greatest gift that our sins um, are washed away by the good work of Jesus on the cross, bearing not his own sin, but ours. And so we come to this table to remember how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ even for us.